Turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're back in our series, Life Under the Sun, and we're just getting ready to dive into this book. Um, as we dive in and as you all turn there, I want to make um, a confession to you all. Uh, I don't struggle with this anymore now. It was a part of my past a long time ago. Uh, but in high school, particularly my last year of high school, uh, I got into soap operas. <laughs> Not by my own choice. I didn't set out to, but there was this girl that I liked, and I had an off period in school, and she was really into all of those things. And so on my off period, we would go and sit down and to try to impress her. You know, I started to watch them, and, um, you know, you get to a point where, like days and months go on and there's just times in, in, in your life where you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, how did I get to be this way? Um, that's how I felt. Like you watch these things and what you find out is that uh, like people's lives are just kind of so complex. Right? Soap operas got their name because they were these shows marketed to people, really, who felt like that their lives were in this rut. They wanted more out of the lives that they had. So the, the way that they got their names were, uh, the reason why it's called a soap opera is because most of the people that would watch these shows at home were stay-at-home moms that spent their days cleaning their houses and feeding their kids. So... Folks like Tide and all of these detergent groups spent so much money to block off these time slots to where there'd be times of the day where every commercial was about soap, and that's how it got its name, soap opera. Well, what took place is there are these people that look at their lives, they feel like their life is in a rut, and they want more out of their lives, so they watch these shows about these lives where People are spending their days trying to manipulate the details of their lives. People are working so hard to change the lives that they're in, manipulating the details of their lives in order to get the life of their dreams. And as I thought about the book of Ecclesiastes and as I thought about our own lives, I feel like we're guilty of the same things. We can spend our days trying to manipulate the details of our lives in order to get the lives of our dreams. We spend so much time thinking about the relationships that we have that don't go the way that we want them to go. And so we plot and scheme and manipulate and do all sorts of things to make this right. We think of a spouse that we may want, a job that we may want, and we get consumed with the details of the days of our lives. And as we get so consumed with those details, I think that we can tend to ignore God passively and proactively. Here's what I mean. We can get so consumed with what goes on in our worlds that God becomes very ordinary. To where when we go to him in prayer, We go to him in prayer, like a pastor friend of mine says, in order that God would grant our wishes and not that he would 
govern our lives. It's ordinary because we can pray at any time that we want to. We really don't spend much time praying. Or we get so consumed with what we want out of life And we know the standard that God has laid for how it is that we should spend our lives. And we're convinced that God's standard, that God actually becomes an obstacle towards our joy. So it's not that we ignore him, but it's that we spend our lives trying to maneuver around him to get what it is that we really want. And in being so consumed with the details of the days of our lives, we tend to ignore God. He gets cropped out of the picture. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend our time and talk here about how should we best spend the days of our lives. Our lives, managing the details of our lives, trying to manipulate them is such hard work. And that hard work can lead us to become very joyless when it comes to the life that we have very frustrated in the life that we have. But I think that Ecclesiastes 3 helps us out, and it gives us uh, three truths to think of as we think of how do we have joy with the life that we have right now. Here's the big point. Here's the big truth, the thing that I want us all to get, and it's this. Life is meant to be managed, not manipulated. Life is meant to be managed, not manipulated. And the three things that we're going to get here from this text are this very simple and plain. You are not in control. God has complete control and God has perfect control. You are not in control. God has complete control. God has perfect control. Control. Ecclesiastes 3, just to set a little background on where we've gone thus far. Basically, the message, the thing that we've seen in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 is this. Nothing in life is everything that you thought it would be. Nothing in this life is everything that you thought or hoped it would be. Ecclesiastes is written by this kind of old, think of like your old grumpy but wise grandpa that sits down to tell you about life. And he just gives this realistic picture. And he says, if you're trying to find fulfillment in knowledge, if you think that's the void that you have, it's only going to make you more sad. If you think fulfillment is going to come in pleasure, more pleasure is only going to make you more empty. If you think fulfillment is going to come in securing the best future for yourself and or your descendants, know that one day you're going to die and you're going to have to leave your stuff to somebody that doesn't care about it as much as you did. So Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 really ends with nothing in life is everything that we thought it would be. That if we're going to find joy, we have to get our eyes off of this life and look up towards God. And that's great, and that's big, that's this big, broad, and bold truth. But when it comes to managing the details in the days of our lives, we need something a little more practical. And here's where Ecclesiastes 3 starts. So very first point is this. If you're ever going to find joy in this life, you have to embrace this truth. You are not in control. You're merely a first responder. Ecclesiastes 3, starting at verse 1, says this. 
For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Look, look at how many times the word time is going to be used. There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Verse 9, what has the worker from his toil? This starts off in the main point that he's trying to get here. The thing that we have to grasp is this. Your life cannot be manipulated. It's meant to be managed, which means this. You're a first responder. A first responder is somebody that comes onto a scene, a chaotic scene. They're not responsible for what went on, but they have to come and they have to manage the chaos that they get. This is what our lives are like. Verse 2 starts off and it says this, look, there's a time to be born and a time to to die. Raise your hand if you had any say-so about the family that you were born into. Raise your hand if you had any say-so about the color of your skin when you were born. Your wealth. The disposition of your family. Your hair texture. Your eyesight. From the job, he just starts out and says, look. The way that we're born into this world is meant to cement this truth inside of us that you are not in control. Any control that you think that you have of the life that you have is an illusion. And he says, listen, there's a time to die as well. Very few people, regardless of how prepared they are to die or not, can control the circumstances surrounding their death. And so this first line, it compares these opposites, and it just kind of serves as like these dates on a tombstone, right, where that little dash represents all that's in between. And all that this first poem is, is really just a creative way to help you see you are not in control. It's not going to tell us how to get control. This is just descriptive. It's just describing life, how it is. But the point is this. Life changes lanes without getting your permission. Time progresses. Things take place. And you're left picking up the pieces. All of your life, all of our lives are really made up of these responses of things that happen to us, regardless of if we want them to happen or not. And you have no control of what takes place in your life any more than you have any control of the weather in the morning. Seasons come and go. 
and we can't manipulate it. We're left to manage those things. The crazy thing about this list, the thing that we don't have, at least seasons are predictable. We know that at a certain time of year, it's going to get to a point where we have to put on more clothes. As we look through this list, do you know what makes this list so hard? It's unpredictable. We have no clue how long these things are going to last. We just know that all of these things are going to come to our lives. There are going to be times when you're joyful and there are going to be times where the tenor and the tone of your life is spent crying and mourning the loss of something and you and I have no clue and or no control over how long those things last. It's inevitable. It's unpredictable. But the good news about all of this is, is that it's not permanent. No season that we're in lasts forever. This is just set here to remind us that both of them are going to come and you, in your own power, can't make sure that you only get one side of this list. To live your life only trying to live in one side of this list is to be in denial. It's swimming upstream. It's fighting against a current that you can't move past. The only way that we're going to experience any type of joy in this life is if we embrace the fact that you are not in control. Here's what takes place if, as you think of the life that you have, here's the danger of living in the extremes. If you're somebody in this life that's overly optimistic, right, that thinks that this next thing will be the thing that changes your life or completes you, if you're overly optimistic, you're setting yourself up for despair because it's going to disappoint you. If you put your complete hope for fulfillment in anything, any person, any job, it will disappoint you. But on the flip side, if you're overly pessimistic, it's not that you're going to be set up for despair, but you're going to cement yourself in despair. And you're going to mess up the good times or you'll miss out on the good times because even when God brings blessings our way, you're not going to be able to enjoy it because you're going to look for how it is going to be messed up. So his first point is this. You're not in control, and what that means is that you and I have to live our lives with this realistic flexibility. We can't be rigid. We can't be those that think that our life is only going to be made up of the bad things, nor can we be those who hope that our life is only going to be made up of the good things. And this flexibility freezes Do you know what it frees us from? It frees you from feeling as if you have to force all of your friendships to fit into a mold. 
It frees you from putting these unnecessary expectations of people that just because things go good now, that if if in a few years y'all aren't friends or y'all aren't as close as you thought that you would be, that something drastic went wrong. It's not the case. Life is about seasons. And anybody that is self-aware is confident in who they are, but not seasonally aware, knowing how to adjust who they are to the season that they're in, will live this life incredibly frustrated. Look here at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. The end of verse 5 is what we want to spend our time on. There is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. What this is saying is that there are seasons in our lives for both of these. If we think that we're in control and we love the closeness to somebody and we spend our lives trying to embrace and we're committed that we're going to embrace them for the rest of our lives and we're not going to let them go, that's our attempt to manipulate something that at the end of the day, Being in an embrace is not always the best thing for somebody. If you've ever had a family member that's been addicted to drugs, then one of the things that you do know is that there comes a time where embracing them, bailing them out, letting them have their way, is actually the worst thing that you can do for them. There's certain times where a refrain from an embrace, saying, hey, if you're going to choose this path and you have to go your way, know there's always an open invitation for you to come back. However, there is going to be a time where we have to let you go. Sometimes it's the actual refrain from embracing. That's the very thing that saves them. But if we're too rigid and commit and think that one way of life is going to be the thing that brings us our joy, we'll ruin people. Look here at verse 7. There's a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. What does that mean? In the Bible, um, when folks were mourning the death of a loved one, they would tear their garments When the morning was done, they would sew things up. Now, why is that paired with a time for silence and a time to speak? I think it's pretty clear. Christians, especially those of us that know truth in God's word, do you know what we're great at? We're great at strong proclamation of the truths of God's word. Do you know what we're not so great at sometimes? Sustained, silent presence. When somebody is mourning and it's fresh, regardless of how much good truth that you have, sometimes the more that you speak, the less helpful that it is. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is not espouse and pontificate about the meaning of reality and how God is 
close and all of these truths about life and death, sometimes the best thing that you can do is just sit there and be quiet. You go through the book of Job and Job loses his kids and everything. And there's this one part in the book that's the sweetest part of the book. And it says this, that his friends come in. And for seven days, they just sat with him and said nothing. And that's the one part of the book where there's this kind of peace and tranquility. And then the rest of the book, for 30-something chapters, they open their mouths and argue with him. And that's harder than the actual loss that he went through. Sometimes it's good for us as a church, as people. To be silent. There's seasons for both. And know this, the further away from the actual event that caused the grief, the the more helpful your words might be. So here's one practical thing that we can do as a church or as a community that have committed to walk with people through these things, and that's this. Mark your calendars for specific dates, not just in your life, but in somebody else's. If you know somebody that's lost a loved one and they're grieving, sometimes it's helpful to just mark the date that that grief took place and to be reminded a year from now or two years from now. When all the helpful words stop, sometimes it's words that take place the further and further that you go that can help. Basically, this first part is just trying to help us see, listen, all of our lives are responses. Wisdom is not just about the right response, but it's about the right response at the right time. How do we know what the right time is? This passage doesn't tell us. That's the book of Proverbs. What this is meant to say is, we want you to know that there is a right time for both. One of them is not to be sought after and one to be rejected. Any attempts that you make to manipulate your lives to only have one and not have the other is futile. It doesn't work. You are not in control. Both or needed. Sometimes introverts need to speak up that your silence is harmful. Sometimes extroverts need to shut up because your words aren't helpful. There's time and there's room for both. And more than being self-aware, we need to be a group of folks that are seasonally aware that we spend our time with the flexibility knowing what's needed at the point in time. The life that you have cannot be manipulated. It's meant to be managed. And in order to manage it properly, you and I have to know that we are not in control. Here's the beauty of what goes on, though. If we're not in control, then who is? Are we just left at the mercy of random events and times that take place? Absolutely not. Verses 10 starts off and it says this. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has set 
eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than they should be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is the second time in the book that he's found joy in the midst of life being as frustrating that it is. And do you know what they have in common? Both times that he finds joy, he finds it not as he reflects on what's under the sun, but on what's beyond it. If any of us are going to have any semblance of sanity in the life that we're in, it's not going to come just by helpful advice that you get from people. It's going to become come from turning your eyes off of what's right in front of you and looking up at God. The best thing that you can do is to surround yourself with people that aren't going to spend the bulk of their life merely talking about the details of our lives. The best thing that you can do is surround yourselves with people that in the midst of feeling like we're drowning, they point you to look up. This is what he does right here. He says, you're not in control, but that's not something that should be unsettling to you. It should be liberating because do you know who is in control? God is in control. Look, look at all these verbs here in verse 10, right? I have seen the business that God has given. Verse uh, 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in the hearts of man. You and I respond to what goes on in our lives. God doesn't respond to anything. God is the initiator. He's in control. You and I don't manipulate life because God has it covered. God's working. His point right here is this. God is sovereign. It's this word that we use that just means this. God has complete control over absolutely everything. Psalms 115.3, trip. Read it and it says this, that the Lord sits in the heavens and he does what he pleases. There's this story in the book of Genesis of this guy by the name of Joseph. His brother sold him into slavery. He lost everything that he had. He was falsely convicted of sexual assault and spent years in prison. When it was time for him to get out. There were all of these details that took place, but God or God saved them and brought them out. And then his brothers, the very people that put him in jail came to him and they asked him for help. And instead of holding a grudge, do you know what he says? As they apologize and say, we're sorry that we did all of this to you. As he recounts the story, in Genesis chapter 46, he says this. Y'all don't trip. Well, that is what he says. You have to read closely. Yeah, he says, y'all don't trip. God sent me here. God orchestrated all the details of my life. At the end of the day, 
He knew I don't have control. You don't have control. But do you know who does have control? God has control. So he reinterprets the tragedies of his past through the lens of God's control. Isaiah chapter 46, starting in verse 8. It's going to be here on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. It says this. This is God speaking. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, God says, I'm so controlled over all of the details that I determine which way the birds fly. The man of my counsel from a far country, think all that you want to about the decisions that we make and the ways that we decide that we're going to manipulate and maneuver life. And what we'll find out is that wherever we are presently is exactly what God had determined that we would be. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. His point here is, yo, God is in control. This business of life that we have that takes the bulk of our time, the days of our lives, God was the one that determined that our days of our lives would be what they be, uh, what they are. Look here at verse 11. It says this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. As we think about that first list, we would split that list up into things that are delightful, things that are good in our lives, and things that are disgusting, things that we hate, things that we would avoid at all costs. When he says that God has made all beautiful in its time, what he's saying is that when it comes to the events of our lives, God has no such binary list. That as God views these uh, events that take place in our times, our lives, all the highlights, all the things that we love, all the tragedies, all the things that we would avoid, this God that's in control, he looks at all of those things And he says that all of them are absolutely necessary. And the reason why we don't see them as beautiful is that we don't have a complete sense of what God's doing. We can't stand back far enough to see all of what God's trying to do. My wife has great vision when it comes to artwork, uh, painting, uh, fixing up our house on the inside. And there's sometimes where she'll like start things off and she'll be like, John, what do you think? And I'll say, I hate it. And she's like, well, you only hate it because I'm not done yet. You can't see what I see. So of course you're going to say that you hate it. Just wait. One day you're going to be able to step back far enough and you're going to see this. And this is what God has done. God has made everything beautiful in its time. There is nothing. There is absolutely nothing that has gone on in your life right now that God would look at and say is absolutely unnecessary. 
Do you believe that? Here's what will take place if you don't believe that truth. You'll spend your life trying to manipulate the days of your life. You'll spend your life with the life that you have trying to fix things, trying to fix what God has messed up. You'll spend your prayers praying for God to grant the wishes that you hope instead of asking for God to govern your lives. He brings us up and says, no, 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 God has complete control. He's made all beautiful in its time. He goes on and says this, also, he has put eternity on man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning until the end. What does that mean? When it says he has put eternity on our heart, it means that God has put in us this innate desire to get a sense of the whole, to live our lives trying to figure out what God's doing. But he's only provided us with a small piece of it. So we're never going to be fully brought into the loop of all that God is doing in our lives, but we are going to try to find it out. This is in all of us. We create stories in our mind that if you were to leave here and you see a lady running down the street crying in a wedding dress, you don't just process those facts. Do you know what you, you do? You create a story in your mind. What happened? Somebody must have left her. I can't believe that he left her. Maybe he was cheating, that dirty dog. And we just go on and on in our minds, and we try to create a sense of what's going on, what happened. This is how God has made us. And we don't just do it with things like that. We do it with the events of our lives. But because God has complete control... He only gives us a glimpse of it so that you and I will be ever dependent on him. So here's what took place um, in my life two and a half years ago. Uh, My wife and I have been trying to adopt for a long time. And two and a half years ago, April of 2014, we get a call about a little girl, Mary. She was one years old, had an opportunity to adopt her, and... Um, April of 2014, I'm in Kentucky, and I get a phone call that said the adoption fell through. A family member came back together, and we were frustrated and heartbroken. And we said, God, God, why? Why did you let us get our hopes up for this, only for our hopes to crash down? We stay in the process. Twelve months later, Mary's brought back up, and they say this time, Everything is smooth. And so we say, maybe God did that so that he could test us and we stayed faithful. And so my wife and I are on a vacation in Hilton Head. um, And they tell us, hey, Mary's in Savannah. Y'all can meet her on Friday. So we're hyped. And Thursday night at 5 p.m. is we're starting to talk about what she looks like and all of our hopes and dreams and the names that we're going to change and the prayers that we have for Thursday night at 5 p.m. They call us, and our caseworker is irate. 
And she's like, we got to the last level of approval. And out of nowhere, somebody else stepped in and they said that y'all can't have her. She's like, I got so mad and upset that they had to take me off of the case. So we're frustrated and heartbroken. We drive back home. And then Tuesday of the next week, I'm in Orlando and I get a phone call that my brother dies. And six weeks later, we launch this church in 2015. My life is filled with depression and frustration, anxiety. And it's a year and a half later. And I constantly sit back and I think, why? And two and a half years later, from the first time that I got that phone call about Mary, do you know what I know? Nothing. I don't have a sense of why God would do that. It doesn't make sense to me. It's it's frustrating and it's heartbreaking. But inside of my heart, I have this thing. I want to know why. If I had to go through this, the least that you could do is let me know why. But what we find out is that God has placed eternity in our hearts. He's he's provided us with a sense of wanting to know why. But in all of our lives, regardless of what takes place, there is no guarantee that we'll know why the things that have gone on in our lives have gone on. Do you know Job? You read the end of that book, and God never comes up to Job and says, Hey, Job. Sorry about all that. The reason why I did that was because Satan did this, and I'm going to use you and write this story so that people that go through hard times can fall back. Job never knew. Look at verse 13 or 12. After he says that God has placed this sense of us wanting to know on our hearts, however, man is not going to find out what God's doing. We're not going to know the details of how God weaves things together. Verse 12 says this, I perceived that there is nothing better than for them to be joyful. Wait a minute. So he's saying, though God has done all of this, the best thing that you can do is to be joyful. Where can joy come from if we don't know exactly how God is using these hard times for good? We think that joy is based on details and how much God brings us into the picture. But joy is never based on that. Do you know what joy is based on? Joy is based on a God that's in control. Joy is based on this God who works all things uh, according to his will and is always going to have his purpose done. Do you know what this helps us see? This helps us see that even though we're consumed with the details of our lives, God is just as consumed with those things, but God's concerned with something bigger. God is concerned with the direction of the universe. You may be the center of your world, but I want you to know you are not the center of human history. There is something that a God that directs the times is working on. And sometimes the best things for us is to rise out of, rise up out of the lives that we have right now and to be reminded that God is doing something big and grand of which we are all supporting 
characters. It's going to be here on the screen. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says this. And look, look at these first words. But when the fullness of time had come. Fullness of time, what does that mean? When the time was com- complete. Well, this is the climax. This is the center of human history. When time was at its desired place, this is what God has done. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are under the control of time. Time progresses. It changes our lives. It does not ask for permission. God, however, sits on the outside of time, and he is using time to do something. And what lies at the center of human history is not primarily the details of your lives. What lies at the center of human history, the news that is applicable and relevant to all of us, is what God has done in Jesus Christ to bring us all to become a part of his family. Ephesians 1, I'm going to read verses 5 through 10, and I'm going to spend a little more time on this, and it says this. He predestined us as son, or for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Because of our sin, because of our uh, uh, attempts to replace God as the center of the universe, And to spend our lives manipulating our lives, trying to get the lives that we want with the exclusion of God. What takes place is because of that sin, you and I owe this debt to God. We owe God all of the days of our lives because he's in control and we have not provided him the days of our lives. So there's this huge debt that we owe to God. And this is the beauty of what God has done in Christ. He's forgiven all of that debt, all of that sin, all of the distance that we wanted from God that earned us eternal separation from God. God has forgiven that debt in, in, in Christ. I'm going to go on. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, that same word again, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here's the best way that that I know how to explain what took place and how relevant it is to all of us. I left college with tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Last week, somebody came in 
And he literally sat down across from me and said, John, how much do you owe? And I say this much, tens of thousands of dollars. And he says, I've got a deal that's closing next week. And I'm going to pay all of that debt. I'm like, but I didn't do nothing. And there's no way that I can pay you back. You know, I just want you to know. And he says, well, I know that, but I, I want to pay that debt. This is good news that I got from this one man. So I put it on Facebook this past week, like, yo, I'm free. I just want you all to know me and Sally Mae, we broke up. And we're done. Listen, this good news that took place for me, I shared it. And do you know what took place? Everybody that owed a penny They said, who's that guy? Can you introduce me to him? I have a debt that I owe that I can't pay back, and I would love for him to do that for me. And what I said is, well, no, because I may need something more from him later, and I don't know just how much he has. Here's what I want you to see. That was such good news. Word traveled so quickly. And everybody that had this debt, though the news was irrelevant to them, it captured them and they wanted a piece of it. What God is doing in Christ is the exact same thing, but it is a man that has enough to pay the sin debt that all of us owe. Listen, listen, so every mis- every mis- m- mistake, every lustful thought, everything that we did that we regret, every misspoken word, all of that can be taken care of. That, that act, that's the grand story that God is weaving. That's what lies at the center of human history. Do you know how God brought that good news to pass? By directing the events of the world so that people would maliciously treat Jesus wrong for the duration of his life. God, with all of his control, created the actual people that would actually nail his hands to the cross. God created and directed the actual people that would actually be the ones to falsely accuse him. God created and directed the events of human history. He's not responsible for evil because he's good, but he used it all to lead To this glorious news. If you and I were in control, we would have erased all of the bad parts. But without all of those bad parts, the good news of the gospel never takes place. What a beautiful thing that God has so complete, so much complete control. So we ask, how can I be joyful if I don't know the details and how things work together? Because of the way that God directed the details of life that seemed to end in a tragedy for Christ, but it was good news for us. 
we can be reminded of God's character even when we're not convinced of how he's going to use the details of our lives. Tragedy in our lives is not an excuse to run away from God, but it's a reason to cling to him. That we say, we don't know what you're doing, but we know who you are. And his complete control makes us absolutely comfortable. There's nothing more relevant and applicable than this. And so you know, do you know what faith in God looks like? What it tangibly looks like? Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He's saying faith looks like presently enjoying the life that you have right now. Faith looks like saying, I'm not going to fret over what's to come, but I'm going to be reminded that whatever comes, it's absolutely necessary, and God has it completely under control. So I can relax. I can enjoy the good times right now and not fear waiting for the other shoe to drop. I don't have to miss out on what God's trying to do right now, preparing for what's going to come, because there is a season where bad will take place, but it's unpredictable. God has it covered. It's absolutely needed. So the best thing that I can do with my life right now is enjoy the good things that God has provided for me on God's terms, in God's way. In a church where we're constantly brought into the hard times, not just that we have, but other people, one of the best ways that we can continue to do this as a church is that when you're in a place in life, When things are going well, talk about it. The tenor of our community can't be one where we only bring up the the hard times and feel like, well, I don't want to share about the good times because I don't want folks that have it hard to be sad. No, we want to spend time and testify and talk about the good things that God has done so that we can uplift those that are in hard times to be reminded that regardless of how hard the season is, we serve a God that's big enough to change things. Talk about it. You're not in control. It's actually a good thing because if you're not in control, God has complete control. And as we close here, I just want to say this. Not only does God have complete control, but God has perfect control. Verses 14 says this. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Listen, nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him. That which is has already been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. His point that what God has done endures forever means this. What God has done is absolutely perfect. If you try to add anything to it, 
It's going to make it worse. You can't refine it to make it better. Everything that God has done, every event in your life has been purposeful for a reason to get you right here. Hear what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this. Some plants die if they have too much too much sunshine. It may be that you are planted where you get but little, but you were put there by the loving husbandman because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Do you believe that every time that you pray and ask God for something, he gives you exactly what you would have asked for if you had all the information that he did? Every time that you pray, it's not that God says no and keeps good things from us, but he gives us exactly what we need. God's control is absolutely perfect. Verse 15, that last phrase, it says this, and God seeks what has been driven away. I think what that means is it's in reference to time. There's things in our lives that we look back and say, I wish this never took place. If I had the power, I would erase this event, this season, this period from my life. We think it has no useful purpose, but in being reminded that God has perfect control, what he's saying is even those things that we would want to throw away, even those events of the past, God is going to call those things to account. And one day we'll sit back and see just how God used the thing that we wanted to discard to bring about good. Everything that's going on in our lives is absolutely necessary. God has complete control and perfect control. The sovereignty of God here, him being in control, is not meant to be dissected. It's not meant for us to say, well, how much control does God have over the evil that takes place in our lives? What's meant to be said here is, listen, God has perfect and complete control. So you know what that means for you? You can relax. You can take life in stride a day at a time and know that the God who sits outside of time has everything covered. Under the sun, there's a time for everything. Beyond the sun, once God comes back, he said that those tears that were timely now there will be a time where there's no more time for tears. The sorrow that plagues us right now, there will be a time. But there's no more time for that. But that day is not today. Today, we take life in stride. We go to this God that governs the direction of the universe. And what Christians do, is we say, God, I need more than you to grant me the wishes of the details of my life. I need you to govern my life. 
I don't want to be in control. If you've been in control of your life and you've wrecked it, know that right now where you sit, you can turn over control to Jesus and let him direct and govern your life and be reminded that nothing that's going on, even your mistakes are outside of the reach of God to bring those things, to call them into account and to use them for all good. Life can't be manipulated, so stop trying. It can be managed, and the best way to manage the days of our lives is to leave the days of our lives in the hands of our God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace uh, to turn over control of our lives and give them completely to you. Remind us that you're big enough and powerful enough to direct all the tragedies, all the heartaches of our lives to a common good. Help us to not be those that are so rigid, but we think that we have to do those things ourselves. Give us the joy and comfort that comes from giving the steering wheel to somebody that knows how to better steer our lives. We pray that you would do that for all of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.